Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm David Rothkoff here in New York City uh, at our tiny studio in New York and our tiny studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C. are Ed Luce of the Financial Times and David Sanger of the New York Times. And at Stanford University in Palo Alto, California, is the inimitable, irrepressible Wonderful Corey Shockey. And what <laughs> Who is we wearing do, the tiara of optimism again? Wearing the tiara of optimism, um, evoking scenes from The Wizard of Oz for everyone who sees her. Uh, she is clearly Glinda, the good witch of the West in this particular case. Um, that would be the good witch now, of the Western democracies, right? <laughs> That's the, the fish. Good, right. Now, Finally, finally, <laughs> our podcast has a visual I'm happy about. <laughs> right. <laughs> Corey Shockey, Glinda the Good Witch of Democracy. Um, in any event, Glinda, as we're looking at the current state of American democracy, with every passing day, there's some new piece of crap that falls on the big, heaping, stinking pile of crap that is the Trump now, administration Now, there's a visual scandal. I did not need. No, you didn't need it, but you can't turn away from it. We, you know, we, what do you think of the state of the play? You know, even as we're recording this, the, the, the White House uh, in a press conference is saying things like, oh, well, um, we have no reason to believe that anybody in the meeting with Don Jr., discussed anything except adoption-related issues? Uh, So on the narrow point about adoption-related issues, it's really important to keep in context that the Russian government cut off adoptions as retaliation for the Magnitsky Act sanctions that were put in place. So talking about adoptions is talking about changing the Magnitsky Act sanctions that were put in place on Russia. Uh, And is it not the case that one of the people sanctioned in those sanctions was the Russian prosecutor with whom the lawyer who attended this meeting was affiliated? uh, So this is the point at which I I lateral to... Uh, any of the three journalists on this podcast who will know with greater accuracy than me. By the way, I resent being called a journalist, and I have to say anyone who's ever written, read anything I've written would also resent the allegation. But David, <laughs> I, would, I, would certainly, Sorry, I would certainly David. endorse the— Scholar and journalist. I, I, I would certainly endorse the concept that um, it, it, it bends away from journalism. <laughs> Thank you. 
Thank towards towards toward justice, David. We know the arc of history bends towards justice, or or toward the um, absence of reporting, one or the other. I think it's, I think yeah. it's, it's bending. It's bending the cost curve. Nothing to do with history. Thank you. Thank you for your support. But, but David, you were traveling with these characters. You interacted with them. For all I know, you spoke to the president of the United States. How do they think they're doing? Well, they did not have a good week last week. And they didn't have a good week because on the flight back from the G20, they came up with the most limited set of talking points for um, uh, Donald Trump Jr., and he made the mistake of issuing them and what followed was a series of greater and greater revelations. So what were they? So it starts with this was a meeting about adoption. Then my colleagues at the Times discovered that in fact the the hook for the meeting was dangling the possibility of opposition research uh, about Hillary Clinton. Then the Times gets a hold of um, the – uh, emails that Don Jr. had back and forth with the people who were setting up this meeting. And uh, Donald Trump Jr. then releases these emails moments before the Times publishes them so they can celebrate their transparency uh, on this on this issue. Um, and what do the emails reveal? The emails reveal two significant things. First, that the appeal to – for having the meeting – was that they have opposition research and that it comes from a Russian government source and in fact may be – include documents or information collected by the Russian judiciary. So even if it turns out that none of that is true, they hold the meeting on the assumption that the Russian government is helping them out in opposition research about Hillary Clinton. Now, the president then doubles down by saying um, – Anybody would have uh, taken this meeting, I think was his phrase. Well, taking a meeting about opposition research is not unusual. Taking a meeting in which you are told in advance that the research comes from an adversary government and therefore the little alarm bell must come off that this may be a counterintelligence operation or an intelligence operation, um, that's entirely different. And what the president seems to be trying to do with these is blur the question of opposition research and where it comes from. And their problem now is that their story has moved from what it was a few months ago, no one in the campaign met with the Russians, to, well, yeah, we had this meeting with the Russians, but it was just with somebody who wasn't related to the government, to, well, there were eight people in the room to, well, one of the eight people in the room had a history as a former Soviet intelligence officer and is now a lobbyist in Washington, to, um, well, we don't think any laws were specifically broken. Now, that's a significantly changed story and the only possible explanation for that is the one the president has put out, which is this must all come out of the fake news media of which uh, – Ed and I are supposed to be, you know, great representatives. So he doesn't beat up on the FT as much. I think he likes the pink color of the paper, and it <laughs> doesn't doesn't annoy him as much Sam, as the New York salmon, Times. Salmon, 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 color, salmon yeah. color. Yeah, uh, and so, um, so was this fake news? No, this was all news that came out of Donald Trump Jr.'s own email account. How can that make the White House very happy? What I don't get is this. We're like zeroed in on this one meeting, okay? Now, 
everything David just said is correct. This, you know, they've changed. Could you their repeat story that one more time? <laughs> I was just going to say the exact same thing. <laughs> everything David said is correct, and the meeting has gone from a tiny meeting where they didn't discuss anything to eight people in the meeting. The New York Times has been great in its coverage of this. They forced Donald Jr.'s hand. He said he laid out everything, and then, as it turned out, he didn't actually lay out everything. Uh, and so, at every turn, they've lied and they've changed their story. But the one thing that we the, the media seems to be going along with is that the discussion ought to be about this meeting. But the meeting does not exist, you know, in a vacuum. Certainly not. Bef- yeah. You know, at the same at, at the same time we were, dis- you know, discovering that, you know, hacking was taking place. They cheered on the hacking. Uh, there were interactions with other Trump people in Russia. Uh, there was apparently, you know, uh, at least uh, some correlation, if not coordination or collusion, there was some correlation between the actions that the Russians took and uh, things that would benefit the Trump campaign. Meanwhile, roughly, you know, you know, even during this campaign, people, advisors to Trump, like Michael Flynn, who would later be the national security advisor, were meeting with Russians. And in the uh, transition, they were cutting deals with Russians and they were lying about the deals. And then Kushner was lying about his ties to the Russians and Sessions was lying about his ties to the Russians. Trump was lying about his ties to all of this stuff takes place. And then we get the Trump presidency and they're doing all this nonsense policies and things like that that support the Russians. It seems to me that this meeting, bad as it is, is the least of it. Why are we so mesmerized by it? Because it's concrete. Ed. Oh, right. Well, okay. David gave the answer and would, would elaborate better than I might be about to if you insist I answer it. I insist. Um, uh, gave the correct answer. is <laughs> because it's concrete. It's there in black and white in the emails Donald Jr. wrote. I just want to pick up one thing that, that David um, said um, about the um, pretext and, and indeed that Corey said about the pretext for this meeting that, that Donald Jr. initially gave, namely that this was about um, Russian adoption. Um, which, of course, as Corey mentioned, was was banned after the Magnitsky Act was passed. Um, uh, and then fast forward to, you know, the moment where Donald Jr. said, oh, no, well, actually, he left the meeting because the oppo research wasn't good enough. I mean, the idea that Donald Jr. would take a meeting and bring along Jared Kushner and bring along the then campaign manager, Paul Manafort, because he cares about Russian orphans? is just, to me the most sort of human sort of piece of preposterousness in this whole thing. <laughs> um, but to your larger question, why do we care about it? Because, you know, I think on small pieces of solid ground, we imagine other larger pieces of solid ground emerging. And this is a very, very solid piece of ground. Um, and all kinds of all kinds of questions that investigators at the FBI and under uh, working for Robert Mueller might ask and should ask arise from this. And so, you know, th- you can quite easily see this as the thin end of, of a much a much bigger wedge than we had before these emails were published. So my well, and, sense is that yes, I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no. My sense is that that the concreteness really does matter because uh, the Trump strategy appears to be very much like the Russian strategy, which is you don't have to believe us. We just need you not to believe any source. 
and the concreteness of it and the obviousness of the administration's lies about it um, reveal that as strategy. Uh, And I hope will, as the pattern reveals itself to more and more Americans, will make more people demand accountability out of the White House. And I think that's particularly important because, as David said, and David was exactly right about this, (laughs) you have to think about the context here. Okay. And the context was the beginning of a remarkable three or four weeks. So think about when this meeting happened. It was June 9th. Then think about when we first became aware of the Russian hack into the DNC. That was June 13th, four days later. Then think about what the president started to say about um, Hillary. He said, uh, we're going to hold a press conference and you're going to learn lots of interesting details that you didn't know about her. Now, he held a press conference, but there weren't any details, which may or may not be consistent with the thought that they didn't get any details from the Russians. Then think about the following month, which was July of 2016. That's when the president says to me and Maggie Haberman that uh, he wouldn't necessarily come to the defense of NATO allies who uh, were attacked by Russia, thinking about Lithuania or Estonia, depending on what their contributions to NATO had been. Then he called on the Russians, jokingly he said, and I believe him it probably was meant as a joke, to go hack into Hillary's emails and find the 33,000 missing emails. Then he repeats in public that uh, he may not support sanctions any longer against Russia for its annexation of Crimea. So what we see is a series of policy – early policy pronouncements that – or willingness to explore new policies that fit the Russian agenda. Now, it could be completely coincidental that this meeting happens on June 9th and there's this cascade of events the next three or four weeks. But it's certainly worth a little more probing. And where do you think that probing is going to take us most over the next couple of weeks? What, what should we expect for the summer here? I think what we ex- – what, what, what are the other shoes that are going to drop? I, I don't know what other shoes are going to drop. But if you're looking at that timeline, it's the effort to put connective tissue between this first meeting, which I don't think the Russians ever really intended to be a we're going to give you stuff about Hillary. I think it was intended as Rolf Moet Larsen, who used to be the CIA station chief in Moscow and others have have written, it was intended as a probing meeting to discover whether or not the Trump campaign was interested in Russian intelligence, whether or not after they had a meeting like this, they would report it to somebody, whether that report would then result in a counterintelligence pushback. It didn't because it didn't get reported. Um, And so in that regard, it was a very classic or followed the pattern of a very classic Russian soft approach and then they could move on from there. It's interesting to me, Corey, that as David describes this and he does an excellent job. He's exactly right about all the points. Um, Corey, make him repeat that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) David, could you say that once again, please? Yeah, we'll just we'll just re rerun the tape. But as he um, describes that, it's interesting that the Trump response to the unfolding of this story uh, recently has been, 
Well, they came. We had this meeting. Yeah, there were a few Russians in the meeting. We're not sure what they were affiliated with. We assumed the Secret Service would tell us if they were spies. Of course, Donald Trump Jr. didn't have Secret Service protection. But And know, that's not what the that. Secret and Service then, does, by the and way. And the Secret Service doesn't vet people for intelligence, for espionage connections. They right, only but, but, vet them for, is this people likely to, person likely to stab the president? Right. And so having said that, they went, they go through all of that. And then they say, well, you know, we listened to the meeting and they didn't really have anything. So nothing came of it. And they don't say we listened to the meeting with these these Russians. Um, and, uh, you know, we immediately realized that, you know, it was wrong to have a discussion with an enemy of the United States about undermining the election. And we called the FBI. Uh, they said, you know, we there wasn't anything there, so we didn't follow up, implying that if the Russians came and actually did give them something, then the meeting would have been worthwhile and they would have followed up. And the president's gone, yes, I agree with all of that, David. And the president's gone even further today by tweeting out a sort of cheery, that's just politics, right? Trying to claim that what they, what, you know, Uday and Kuse, his idiot sons, do is somehow normal behavior in a democratic republic and that everybody does it. And that's simply not true. If it was just oppo research way, and not way, from the Russians, it would be just politics. But it wasn't. Right. But it was fr- from our enemy. By the way, I do want to point out, Corey, that we have been instituting a series of deep state radio polls. And one of the ones that we did last week was to determine which character Donald was, Jr. was, you know, <laughs> was best manifest by. Uh, and Uday finished second to Fredo. Fredo, Fredo Corleone was, was the first. And then, and well, then it was Uday Cartman of South Park <laughs> finished dead last, by the way. Well, let me just say that I am not surprised that my preferred cultural references are not the leading trendiness. I'm, I'm quite accustomed to that. Also, Corey, well, remember that these are the results of the finest minds in the deep state radio polling unit. <laughs> <laughs> You mean David voted 48 times as <laughs> though it was Major League Baseball selecting yeah. the All-Stars? Yeah, something like that, yeah. I thought, um, I thought first the conclusion all, I... was that everybody in the Trump family is Fredo, you know. That the, there, no, <laughs> the, there is no Don Corleone, there is no Al Pacino, there is no, um, there is no sophisticated mind there. And what, and what you know, the the sort of B-movie quality um, to how the Trump people have sort of behaved like semi-gangsters, the family as a whole, um, is is what's presumably causing the juices to flow at the FBI and elsewhere because they're making it remarkably easy. Well, that's that does seem to be true. And by the way, there is a kind of Internet meme photo out there that shows the whole Trump family and each one of them is saying, I'm Fredo. No, right. I'm Fredo. Right. Um, <laughs> perhaps you've perhaps you've seen that, and I just I just wanted to clarify. I like the Uday um, analogy just as well. Um, but as so we my go through favorite this, Twitter, me- Oops, I'm sorry. Yes, go on. My favorite Twitter meme on the Trump sons uh, is the one after the Eric uh, after the Donald Jr. 
um, meeting broke, the the tweet ostensibly from Eric saying, whispering, and now I'm the smart one. <laughs> so where does this leave Jared? Yeah. Well, Jared, well, where does it leave? Jared? It's a very good question. So when you think about this, Jared is the only one who actually has potential legal jeopardy, I think, out of this meeting, or at least that it's immediately evident to us, because he left this off of his initial um, disclosure form when he was getting his clearance. And had he not updated that form because of fear that uh, that he could lose his clearance if he didn't provide accurate information, we would never have known the meeting happened. And had we never known the meeting had happened, we would never have been able to follow the email trail. So in the end, it was Jared's disclosure on the most boring of government documents, not some anonymous source someplace, not what I was told, you know, over the weekend were, you know, illegal uh, anonymous leaks and so forth. It was a disclosure on a public form that ultimately took everybody to this meeting. That is a There's delicious a interesting journalistic irony. lesson there, isn't there? Yeah. Absolutely. There, there really is one. Now, it's also kind of interesting that Jared seems to be able to go on with his security clearance despite the fact that he misrepresented, lied, or omitted on that form over 100 times. I the, mean, the, more than 100. So many times. The president can give right. a security clearance to anybody. He, he could even give one to Rothkoff if he was so – Inclined. I can't imagine <laughs> why one would do yes. that, but still. And of course, I, he could, I, he could I, pardon I to, everybody too, including himself. Uh, yeah, he can pardon everybody for federal crimes. I, I do believe he can't pardon people for state crimes, which is an interesting twist in all of this. Something that I read really? al along the way. That's what I read someplace, but you know, may not be true. But I believed it because it was on the internet. That may be in the department of someone once said <laughs> a favorite Trumpism. That's, that's, <laughs> you read it on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> it, in the Ministry of Snark, we call that real news, David. <laughs> as opposed to as opposed as opposed to fake news. But um, I, it, it it is interesting that this is evolving at such a rapid pace right now that you sort of go, you wake up, you go to Twitter, and you literally expect every half an hour there to be some new new revelation associated with this. Um, and it distracts from the fact that the administration is, you know, also tr involved in trying to pass a health care bill or trying to do international activities. We, David, you were at the G20. We talk a lot about the G20 and the Putin meeting. We talk a lot about... What what in talking to foreign leaders do that? How are they sort of doing the windage for this scandal? How are they preparing for the ways it might go? Um, they're not. What they're mostly doing is cornering um, journalists who come from Washington and asking them if they can give any insight into this that was not immediately. Uh, evident from uh, reading the New York Times or Washington Post or FT or somebody else's um, mobile uh, journalistic offerings. 
And the answer to that is we can't because the one thing they all want to know is where does it lead? Does it lead to the president himself? Does it ultimately paralyze the presidency here or does it just continue on as a low-grade virus that is a distraction for the administration? And frankly, if it's the latter, they're not entirely unhappy because if they think that it will actually slow down the Trump global agenda that we were discussing in a previous episode, then they're they're perfectly happy to sort of see the president act distracted. They may miss American leadership, but they think that he would not have the room, particularly with Russia, to make the kind of changes in policy that he may have had in mind. Corey, this is kind of brilliant. You know, there's a, there's a kind of turning in on itself quality of this that Trump awfulness is the best possible antidote to Trump awfulness. And that, in fact, Trump, <laughs> Trump awfulness at management, the, managing the government, which is compounded by the Trump awfulness that may lead to the government being paralyzed in an investigation, are the two best ways to, to counteract Trump awfulness in terms of policies. Um, so that Trump is, in fact, like a, you know, perpetually self-healing, self-creating wound. You know, I do think Sophocles, Euripides, the Greek tragedians of the Periclean age would be just elated to see Twitter makes him, Twitter ruins him, right? The, 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 this, not circularity, but the coming to completion of the tools Trump has used to make his way to the presidency are also the tools and the practices that are driving him deep into legal jeopardy, deep into public unpopularity, and deep into the incapacity to govern the country. Okay. So let me shift the discussion. We're talking about the state of the scandal. We sort of have to do this once a week because it's moving very quickly. Um, but as we do talk about the state of the scandal, there is the Russia hack and the issue of collusion. And of course, I think the reason that the Donald Jr. Uh, meeting was so noteworthy is that if somebody sends you a document saying the Russian government would like to provide you with damaging information on your opponent, and you say, great, I'd love that. Let's have the meeting. That is actually the beginning of collusion. But there are so many other possible avenues for scandal to go here. Violation of the Emoluments Clause. Just this weekend, the president of the United States spent three days at the Ladies Professional Golfers Tour Open at one of his resorts where he goes all the time promoting his resorts, making money from Secret Service paying his resorts, uh, making money from people buying products at his resorts. That's a violation of the Emoluments Clause. There's the business dealings of Trump and Kushner and the Trump children, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, all these other things. Are we so caught up in this one thing that we may be blindsided with under these other things coming along? What should we be looking <clears throat> for in these other areas that we think may be, uh, you know, an iceberg that's not that far below the surface? 
So Dave is looking at me, but I, I do feel by far the least qualified person to to um to answer that question. No, David's the least qualified person to answer that question. <laughs> so I'm not going to get in between the Davids. Uh, you were saying everything's absolutely correct uh, uh, until a second ago. I don't want to spoil that. Um, uh, but I, I think uh, the the thing is we don't know. But there are people who who might have a better idea, and there are a lot of them. And Muller um, keeps adding to his team um, what I am told is that uh, Muller thinks this will take at least another year to complete um, but I imagine from the way that Trump responds to signs that people are close to him whether it's Flynn talk, you know, having uh, several hour sessions with FBI interrogators or Manafort or Carter Page or Roger Stone who keeps asking um, to, be, um, to be subpoenaed to testify in front of the uh, Congressional Committee I imagine that the way Trump responds to fear, uh, the way he he reacts defensively um, to inflict, um, you know, further pain on himself and take the investigation further forward, as he did most notably with Comey's firing, but in many other instances, smaller instances, that this could come to a head far quicker than in than in a year from now. That this that this just has a sort of Shakespearean tra- tragic speed to it that I-, I don't think is going to sort of putter on dutifully for a year, 18 months, you know, till after midterms, some people say. Um, I just don't think Trump's psychology and temperament are going to permit that. You know, it's very possible uh, that, that's, that that's right. But if you go back and you look at uh, Director Mueller and his past history of investigations, when he did Enron, when he's done uh, other cases, he's very careful and methodical and slow in building his case and flipping people at lower levels and sort of working his way up. And that's why when you look at the people he've added, he's added on the team, you know, they're all specialists in different areas, whether it's financial crimes or something like that. And it would suggest that he's going to go about doing this the way he's gone about doing every other case and that he's not in a huge rush because if he was in a huge rush, he would then be faced with a very difficult question. If he actually got to a point where he thought there was enough evidence to go after the president himself, would he actually try to do that in court or would he just turn it over to uh, the House and say – Impeachment is a political issue. It's not a legal issue. So first we have to present you with this set of evidence. You can decide politically whether this is an issue. And then later on we can reach the question of whether there's a legal question. So so that sounds absolutely right from everything Mueller's uh, reputation is built on. But uh, my point I think probably didn't express very clearly was how Trump reacts when lower level – when he gets to hear of lower level, level people being flipped. And when those those rumors start to hit him, it's Trump's ability to accelerate this, not Mueller's um, work ethic. In other words, that he overreacts yeah. to each one. Well, that's entirely possible. Yeah. Well, he seems to have overreacted, overreacted to much. Corey, do you have some theories, or what are you, what are the people you know talking about? I agree with everything David and Ed just said. It seems to me so. Two. Two additional things I would say. One is that um, everything hinges on Republicans in Congress' reaction to it. 
because this this isn't likely to be a legal proceeding. It's likely to be a political proceeding. Impeachment is a political process. And if Republicans reach a tipping point, which they should have reached long ago, um, and and allow impeachment to proceed, I don't see, because of Ed's point about temperament, I don't see President Trump able to do anything else. I, I think he's just going to be consumed by this process, tweeting out at three o'clock in the morning everything he thinks about it. Um, the point about uh, lower level people being flipped, uh, Mike Flynn's gone mighty quiet and I suspect is turning state's evidence uh, in order to keep himself out of jail. Because unlike the president, for whom this is a political process, for the lower level people, this is a legal process. And that includes Jared Kushner. Uh, and, and so I think I agree that the pace is going to pick up rapidly and that the president so far has made a number of choices that have expanded the zone of jeopardy, political jeopardy to himself, legal jeopardy to others. Um, And I anticipate he will continue to make those kinds of undisciplined lashing out choices that make that accelerate the timeline and make it much worse. This is what makes him a difficult client for his lawyers. You know, the first thing the clients would tell you is don't talk about it, don't tweet about it, whatever you say is going to be used against you kind of thing. And um, that's what happens when you mix a legal proceeding, a political process, a sense of grievance by the president and by his supporters many of whom think this is an entire distraction made up by uh, the uh, elite media and that nobody in the middle of the country actually cares about it. And they may be right about that. Do they actually believe that you like wander around the West Wing of the White House? You talk to people in the White House. They say, well, David, off the record, I really think this guy is a dirtbag and needs to be in jail. Don't they? Don't people? Isn't anybody in the White House aware of what the problem is? Don't they confide in you? If they if they do, they don't confide in me. I mean, uh, you know, a, a New York Times reporter would not be the one to whom you would tell your deepest, darkest secrets, or at least uh, they don't to me. Uh, maybe they do to some of my colleagues. But I get struck about this, David, when I travel in parts of the country where we're not sitting on every single detail on this thing. And for them, the drip, drip, drip of revelation has just sort of all merged together. No one's entirely sure what the meeting's about, whether you're allowed to have a meeting like that. You're not. When Trump turns out these tweets that say anybody would take that meeting, it's the signal to his supporters to say, yeah, meetings like that happen all the time. And you know the perversity of this, of course, is it's the Republican Party that took the great anti-Soviet and later anti-Russian line, uh, but that's that's what makes this strange. What about the White House press office? I mean, they seem to have not learned anything from this process. Now, let's start with Ed and with David, who sometimes must deal with this press office. Is is it that they're not learning or is it that this studied seeming ignorance is actually 
just a plan, which is just deny everything and don't worry about the underlying facts. So David can speak better to how um, a lot of this is now taking place off camera. Sean Spicer's sort of Saturday Night Live humiliation is um, uh, something that, that you know, I think <laughs> I think the White House system as a whole could no longer bear. Um, but the uh, you know spare a thought. I know people. I dealt a little bit with Spicer at the RNC. Um, spare spare a thought for. Um, no matter how idiotically he's tried to justify and explain away Trump, um, spare a thought for how even, uh, you know, the world's most accomplished PR genius would be failing every day at a job where his boss is not explaining the rationale of his actions to you um, because he himself doesn't know the rationale or, or doesn't know that he's going to change and flip that rationale half an hour later. I would say that in terms of ranking of performance with those dismal conditions, Sarah Huckabee is considered to be better and is clearly liked more by Trump than Sean Spicer is, um, but has made just as many boo-boos as, as Sean Spicer has. She just hasn't sort of been given the honor of a, a weekly Saturday Night Live character. Um, how, how, can you, how can you fashion an intelligent um, and effective um, White House communications policy for people who do care about facts and policies. Um, those who don't care, you know, there is the Trump Twitter account and it speaks to them and it, it gets used every day. So I, I, I'm actually less expert on this than advertised by Ed because frankly, I don't deal with the White House press office anymore. I haven't – I mean even when I was White House correspondent for The Times, which was back during the Clinton and Bush administrations, I found the briefings to be utterly useless. That as a reporter, if you didn't go into a White House briefing knowing more about the subject and more about what was happening inside the White House on any given thing than the press secretary, then you weren't doing your job, right, to start with. And that the meeting – the press briefing was largely useful for knowing that the president next Wednesday is going to be talking to the Kiwanis Club in uh, Cincinnati and so you better have someone around to go pick up the kids from school. OK. That was sort of the extent of the utility of it. Since that time, it's gone dramatically downhill. And I actually don't think that they are of any utility at all other than telling you a little bit about what the White House thinks the line of the day ought to be. But Ed got at the essential issue, which is if the White House is trying to change the discussion to Made in America Week and the president is tweeting about Donald Trump Jr., what does that tell you is actually going on in meetings in the Oval Office? It means they're talking about Donald Trump Jr. I'm still in Infrastructure Week. Did we move past infrastructure? No, no. Oh, that was so yes. many weeks ago. Corey, yeah. this is what happens when you live on the West Coast, you know? I mean, you guys. I know the Pony Express is do, slow. Do you guys, you know, there's, there's Telegraph now. Uh, uh, you know, you could use. And there's that, there's that bullet train that's coming rapidly towards you. I yeah. mean, it's, it's, he announced it ages yeah. ago. No, no, they ran into a problem. That's, that's, the, good, that's the good news. They wouldn't the let bad it. news is it's coming from China. Yeah, yeah it's coming right. across the Pacific. And they won't let it stop. They won't let it stop in Barclay or Berkeley, whatever that was. <laughs> you know, I do, I do want to just sort of throw out there, this is seem like complete non sequitur, but you know, while we have this uh, 
strange phenomenon of Trump awfulness, consuming Trump awfulness, consuming Trump awfulness, which stops, you know, anything from getting too out of hand. And by the way, there is a, a ancient Egyptian uh, symbol of a snake eating its own tail called an Ouroboros, uh, which could become the symbol of the Trump administration, although I think it once meant something like the infinite. But in this case, it's infinite awfulness. But as all of this is happening, you know, the rest of the world keeps, you know, moving along. And one of the things that I found quite interesting was last week, just and I'll just offer these three things up as a, you know, this is kind of a footnote to this conversation. Last week, China opened its first overseas base ever in Djibouti, which is on the Horn of Africa, which gives them a naval resupply base, essentially not just affecting Africa, but the Middle East. It took its first aircraft carrier and sent it out of mainland ports through the Straits of Taiwan to send a message to the people of Hong Kong that they have an aircraft carrier. And they conducted naval warfare exercises in the Mediterranean with the Russians. So all of a sudden, you know, we're sitting here being consumed and consuming our own awfulness and other powers and other things are happening in the world that are shuffling the deck because, you know, the main thing that we're making here in America at the moment or one of the main exports we've got are the seeds of our own undoing in place after place, whether it's fighting a war in Iraq, which ends up empowering our enemy in Iran, fighting a war in Afghanistan that ends up empowering our enemy, the Taliban, uh, letting the Russians have their way with us in Syria and Crimea and in our own elections, which empowers them, uh, and, and, and being distracted by all of this and letting the Chinese step up, uh, by the way, also helping them by dropping out of TPP and never having gotten aboard on the AIIB, the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, we we really seem to be, but uh, you know, not just undoing ourselves, but but opening the doors wide for others. But David, you should remember that while this is all true, everything that you have said, it's not all new. That you know, the Chinese. I remember saying to me. As Obama was coming in, President Obama was coming into office uh, and I was working on a book about the agenda he was facing, I remember a Chinese military officer saying to me at the Central Party School where they train uh, uh, their many of their leaders saying, you know, of all the meetings we sat in about how we would confront the United States, over the years, he said, no one ever stood up at one of those meetings and said, I know what's going to happen. The United States is going to completely distract itself with a useless war in the Middle East and leave Asia as basically a free zone for us to go expand ourselves. And this was back during the, the Bush administration. And they were right. They never anticipated that that was going to happen. And uh, it seems to me we're just repeating the process for them. Yeah, but it, it no, it definitely is that we're repeating the process. And, you know, I was in an exchange about this, and actually my column in the Washington Post this week talks a little bit about this. And in it, we end up with the Sun Tzu quote, which is, ultimate excellence lies not in winning every battle, but in defeating the enemy without ever fighting. And I guess you could go a step beyond that to... Um, having the enemy defeat itself without ever fighting. That's, that's really, you know, the, the, art, the, the, the art of geopolitical excellence writ large. 
and and we're the one who's doing that for them. Um, yeah, so, they didn't even have you know, to snap the wolf trap shut. We're doing it for them. That, well, that's exactly. That's exa- so the, Im- the image I'm so, going to take away from this is the uh, snake eating itself, but but substituting the old Egyptian um, saying above it, which was what again? Well, it's not the, the, the it's called an Ouroboros. Okay, well, and let's the Egyptians replace... believed that it was a symbol of of the infinity. Okay, so I think we should replace that symbol of infinity with the, the snake eating itself and and the line "Don't tread on me," because of course the snake is the Tea Party's uh, the Tea Party's um, um, flag symbol, um, and that that to me in one image with one line captures what's going on here. That's it. We don't need any more of these podcasts. We've discussed it all, solved it all, and drawn a picture. And frankly, for most Americans who don't seem to get what's going on here, uh, it's it's reduced to the level that we've actually got to draw a picture. Nah, <laughs> we'll come back next week. We'll do more of these things. Next week, in fact, on this podcast, our special guest will be Ben Wittes of Lawfare. Yay! Wow. Hey, Ben Wittes, and his, maybe he'll bring his tiny cannon, which has caused some controversy <laughs> on our Twitter waves. Um, but we only respect Ben Wittes' tiny cannon and would never make a joke about his tiny cannon. Um, uh, you just did. <laughs> I, did. I didn't. I'm welcoming him to next week's episodes on behalf of all the thousands and thousands of listeners of Deep State Radio. But please, Deep State Radio listeners, keep up the fact that you're wonderful and you tweet and you respond to our various um, uh, entreaties for engagement and you offer up your own ideas. But bring other people to the party. We're trying to grow rapidly. Uh, We actually are growing rapidly week after week after week. Um, Tens of thousands of listeners every week. It's very exciting. But let's have more come to the party because you guys are the smartest folks in town. And if more people come, they'll rub off on uh, some of your smartness will rub off on them. Uh, Fortunately, this week, uh, some of the smartness of Corey Shockey um, and Ed Luce and David Sanger have also rubbed off on everybody. I'm delighted, as always, to have them involved. They'll be back often. Um, uh, And... uh, and we'll have a blast. So come back and join us again on another episode of Deep State Radio. Thank you. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, We know where to find you.